Uh, thank you very much for being with us today. We are really happy to have you here. And again, I'm really happy to see all the new faces. Um, I guess that many of you by now know what we're doing. I'm just going to say a couple of words for those of you who don't. Uh, we are at the TGR, a research group based at the Center for Criminology. We deal with issues of transitions from uh, in society that uh, are moving from a violent past uh, to uh, uh, democracy, peace, and restoration. Uh, we deal with issues of justice, truth, reconciliation, reparation, and we are an interdisciplinary group. We, uh, despite being based here, and despite now being all represented by lawyers, uh, we have people from all sorts of disciplines, uh, and we do our best to keep it uh, as much of, a, of an interdisciplinary discussion as possible. So wherever you come from, please feel free to intervene. I just want to say that uh, apart from our seminar series, we have many, many other activities. Um, the, the most prominent one uh, alongside this is probably the editorial work we are doing for uh, a website called justiceinfo.net, uh, which is uh, a journalist portal um, and a news uh, outline uh, that reports from regions that are affected by uh, transitional justice uh, issues or are in the process of implementing transitional justice measures. Uh, we provide the academic background to the uh, journalistic reports that this uh, Swiss-based foundation of journalists called Fondazione Irandel does. Um, we will build soon a team of editors so, and we will build a whole new committee, in fact, with many positions that will open. So if you're interested in joining us, uh, look out for our newsletter. We'll try to send it around. If you haven't signed up, we uh, go to our website, which is down here, and sign up and you will hear more towards the end of the week. Uh, I will not take up too much of your time because we are very excited to have with us a guest <coughs> from Brazil. Um, I leave an introduction to uh, TGR student chairperson, Talita. Thank you very much, Talita. Thank you, Bruno, for being with us. Thank you. So I'm not the convener of this group, um, but I'm actually, as Daniel said, the student chairperson. But I decided to step in today as convener for the day because we have a very special uh, guest for me today, um, Professor Dr. Bruno Galindo from the Federal University of Pernambuco, or UFPE, in Brazil, which happens to be the same university where I went for my undergrad in law a few years ago. So I'm very, very happy to have him today with us. Uh, it's not very often that Brazilians come to speak at Oxford, so thank you so much for our invitation and uh, for speaking to us today. Uh, so Professor uh, Bruno Galindo is an associate professor, as I mentioned, at the Federal University of Pernambuco, or UFPR, where he teaches constitutional law. Uh, between 2013 and 2015, he was also the vice coordinator uh, for the undergrad uh, program in law uh, at the same university. Uh, outside of academia, he's also the legal advisor for the penitentiary system of the state of Pernambuco in Brazil. Uh, he is also a state councillor for the Brazilian Bar Association in Pernambuco. He is also a member of the Commission on Human Rights for the Brazilian Bar Association. And um, Bruno holds a doctorate degree in law from the Federal University of Pernambuco. He also spent a year abroad at the University of Coimbra in Portugal. He also holds a master's degree from the same university. And he has published widely in Brazil. 
and not only on constitutional law, but also on public international law, and also recently uh, he's written about the impeachment process in Brazil. So I have some of his books here, which will be donated uh, to the faculty, so if anybody is interested, they can just take a look at the books. Thank you, and today, uh, Bruno's gonna talk to us today about transitional justice in Brazil and the jurisprudence of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. So join me in welcoming Professor Bruno Galindo today with us. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm profoundly honored by this immense kindness of the invitation of the OTGR uh, to talk here today. And I thank you, Daniel and Talita, especially Talita, uh, for the, the generous pr uh, introduction. And of course, I thank you all for being here to listen to me. Uh, before I begin, I, I ask you to have some patience with my English. <laughs> Uh, because I am a Portuguese speaker and um, I came here just one week ago and so <laughs> my English, I promise I'll try to do my best, but <laughs> uh, well, uh, we are, as you know, my presentation is about transitional justice in Brazil and the jurisprudence of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Uh, also subject of, uh, of our research group in law school of Federal University of Pernambuco in Brazil. Uh, my presentation, I divided my presentation in three, three main parts, I, I could say. Uh, first, some considerations about the inter-American system of human rights, its general features and the most, it's better to, to look here, uh, and the most important leading case of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights about transitional justice. Uh, Three percent of the cases uh, judged in Inter-American Court. Uh, a second part, uh, dictatorship, about the main legal aspects of the dictatorship and transitional justice in Brazil. And the third part, finally, uh, the judgments in opposite senses and possibilities of dialogues between the courts, the, the two courts, Brazilian Federal Supreme Court in a side, and the other side, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, uh, the possibilities of dialogues between the courts in the context of Brazilian transitional justice. It's a, a problem nowadays, uh, as we will see. So, uh, let's move on to the next slide. Uh, here. Uh, let's begin with the, the Inter-American uh, System and Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Uh, I think uh, this system was founded in 1969 uh, with the signature of the American Convention of Human Rights and the, known as Pact of San Jose of Costa Rica, and, uh, but uh, came into force just uh, uh, 1978 after the signatures, the 11th signature of the treaty. And uh, the main legislation is here, eh? American Convention on Human Rights and Statute and Regulation of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. It's a part of uh, the system, the general system of American 
organization of American state, but with autonomous organisms, these, these official bodies here. Uh, Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, with competence to investigate, make recommendations, and refer cases to the court. And the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, whose judges have jurisdiction to interpret and apply the convention. Uh, nowadays, uh, 20 countries in Latin America are fully integrated in the inter-American inter system of human rights. Let's move on. Oh, here are the current judges of inter-American court from different nationalities. The president in the middle is Brazilian, uh, a Brazilian fellow. <laughs> and the other judges are from Mexico, Argentina, Ecuador, Colombia, Chile, and Costa Rica. The Magnificent Seven, perhaps they need to be. <laughs> Next. Mm. Okay. It's possible to say that Inter-American Court exercise a supranational jurisdiction. I know the concept of supranational jurisdiction. Uh, there are some difference of this concept here in Europe and in Brazil and Latin America. It, it some, there are some difference, but th there are similarities too. Uh, I could say uh, the jurisdiction of Inter-American Court of Human Rights exercise uh, this supranational jurisdiction, especially beyond the optional clause of compulsory jurisdiction. Uh, this clause uh, allows the Inter-American Court to, uh, to control the conventionality of the legal acts of the states are submitted to the jurisdiction of the court. Uh, of course, the states are not obliged to sign the, this, this clause, an uh, uh, optional clause, but when the state signs this clause, the jurisdiction of the Inter-American Court is obligatory, is binding for them. So, uh, in this case, in theoretical terms, uh, we, we could say about uh, 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 it's, it has become common to speak about a doctrine of conventionality control. Uh, I could say, borrowing some well-known concepts from constitutional law, uh, operational concepts as constitutionality control, a constitutionality block, supranationality from international law in this case. Uh, but uh, uh, this doctrine uh, was conceived some uh, judges from uh, from Inter-American Court as Eduardo Ferrer MacGregor, Sergio Garcia Ramirez, and some professors as Nestor Sagues and Victor Bassan, Argentinian professors. Uh, there are professors in Brazil treating this, this subject, including myself, uh, but uh, the, these, these were, were the first professors to treat this subject in this, uh, with this expression. And in the jurisprudence of the Inter-American Court, the first case that expressly uh, there are that there is a expressly reference to a conventionality control doctrine uh, 
it's this case, Almona C. Arellano versus Chile in 2006. Uh, the judges of the Inter-American Court uh, officially expressed the term uh, conventionality control uh, to, justifi to justify their decision about this case and in coincidentally involving issues about transitional justice in that country. Okay, let's move on. As you can see here, uh, these are, uh, I could say, the court's leading cases about uh, v various aspects of transitional justice in inter-American court. Uh, since 1988, with this case, Velázquez-Rodríguez uh, versus Honduras, we have uh, uh, the court uh, uh, has settled its jurisprudence about transitional justice in, in all the objectives of transitional justice. Justice, uh, truth, memory, reparation, and institutional reforms. But in that case, uh, they, begin with, they began with uh, questions of truth and memory, the, the, the first case uh, about this. And for us, uh, of course, of course uh, during this time, the, the, term, the term transitional justice uh, uh, did, didn't exist in that time. Uh, after, in the 90s, uh, with the work of Ruti Taito and others, as uh, Louis Buick for the Pablo de Grave state here uh, some months ago. And for us, the most important case, leading case in this case, uh, is Gomes Lund uh, against Brazil. Uh, the case known as uh, Guerrilla of Araguaia uh, from November 2010, uh, which involves a broad debate on the shortcomings of transitional justice in Brazil. Is, uh, for us, it's the most important. We, we shall discuss in more detail ahead. Okay. Uh, Have a look at this slide. Uh, this slide uh, shows us something a little paradoxical, I, I believe. Uh, the period of the so-called, uh, I can say in English, uh, bullet years, something like that, in Brazil, uh, between 1968 and 1975, uh, was of uh, great economic prosperity. Uh, to the point of being uh, in Brazil, we called the, this period uh, Brazilian miracle with a, a great economic prosperity. Uh, on the other hand, was the period of most brutal repression of political dissidents and uh, consequently most of the crimes against humanity occurred precisely in that time. Uh, when the, when a, a when an act, uh, institutional act five, uh, was passed, was decreed in truth by military government, not passed in the Congress, the, the, the parliament, but decreed by the military government in December 1968, suspending the rights and fundamental guarantees that still had some protection in that time. 
and giving dictators almost absolute powers to fight and persecute opponents. And it, all, it, it was also during this period that several movements of armed struggle ascended in Brazil, including the movement of guerrilla of Araguaia, uh, as we, we talk here. And in these photos, uh, the, the great paradox, uh, on the left side, we could see, we can see the, the general president of that time, uh, Emilio Garrastazu Medici, uh, hold the Julie Hime Cup the, uh, with, the, with the captain of Brazilian world team, champion of the world, Carlos Alberto Torres. They both are, sec are hold the Julie Hime Cup in 1970. And on the right side, we can see the, the, uh, uh, the photos of uh, some victims of political, uh, of, of, sorry, of enforced disappearance in Brazil. And this, these are other paradox uh, show us in, in, this, in these two pictures. Uh, okay. <laughs> two computers to control it. <laughs> it's uh, most difficult than... <laughs> Oh, uh, to describe the, how transitional justice has been in Brazil, I use this expression uh, of the successor of Medici, General President Ernesto Geisel. Uh, he, talked, he said this expression, uh, slow, gradual, and secure, uh, about uh, uh, the, the General uh, Ernesto Geisel, the, he began a process of distension of uh, return to democracy, and he said uh, the return to democracy in Brazil uh, would have, uh, uh, we, we had a, a slow, gradual, and secure transition to democracy. In general, uh, I could summarize the phrase, the, the speech of uh, <coughs> the speech of uh, General Ernesto Geisel in this phrase. And I, I borrowed this expression to describe transitional justice in Brazil. So, uh, on the difficulty of transitional justice in our country, uh, we could say about the dictatorship, it was a long dictatorship, a military dictatorship, uh, during almost 21 years, uh, to, from 1964 to 1985, with serious violations in, of human rights, especially in, during the, the sad bullet, bullet years, uh, 1968 uh, to 1975. And uh, in 1979, uh, still in the authoritarian period, an amnesty law was passed, and which allowed the return of many political exiles uh, as well as amnesty the majority of, of those convicted and persecuted for, for political reasons in Brazil. Uh, although only with the constitutional amendment, this constitutional <coughs> amendment here in 1985, thank you, <coughs> it was possible to extend the amnesty to those 
uh, to those who committed violent crimes against, uh, against the dictatorship. Because uh, we, we have, of course, uh, the, the, around the involved in armed struggle in Brazil, some of them, of course, committed violent crimes as uh, uh, killing and as, as to, uh, they, they were kidnapped ambassadors to rescue other prisoners of political prisoners. It, it, it was common in the uh, 1969, 1970, uh, there were some kidnappings of ambassadors to, not to, to not to gain money to the armed struggle, but to, to free uh, political prisoners in that case. But the amnesty, the amnesty uh, always uh, be considered as bilateral, uh, reaching state agents and political opponents. Uh, the interpretation in general, the traditional interpretation, uh, that's the traditional interpretation about the amnesty law. Uh, disregarding the concepts of political, uh, political crime, criminal connection, and crime against humanity, even in Brazilian doctrine. So, uh, without conditions to persecute and punish offenders against humanity, the works of transitional justice in Brazil began with the, with the questions of truth and memory. In this case, uh, we, can, uh, we, can, we can see the first work uh, on the left side. The first work was a, a non-governmental work, uh, not by the government. The, the dictatorship was finished in that time, but in this case, we, have, we had a, a non-governmental work of truth and memory. In this case, uh, a non-governmental team of researchers coordinated by Paulo Evaristo Arnos, Archbishop of, uh, uh, of Catholic Church in Sao Paulo. And this team uh, did a, a research in the accessible archives of military justice in Brazil. And, uh, and the report of these researchers uh, were published with a, as a book. Uh, Brazil Never Again, in the same year, 1985, uh, in Portuguese, this Brazil, Brazil Nunca Mais, eh? this here, in, on the left side. And in the right side, uh, we can see the, 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 the work in Brazil, of on truth and memory, uh, the, they began in the 90s, uh, a work, a governmental work, of, uh, of uh, truth, in truth and memory. In this case, with the creation of the Special Committee on Political Deaths and Disappearances in 1995, and after the Amnesty Commission created in 2002, uh, dealing with uh, questions of truth, memory and, repar and reparation, in this case uh, with uh, uh, a reparation policy, began in that year, 2002. And this uh, commission, this Amnesty Commission, is a permanent commission in Brazil. But uh, nowadays, uh, 
the current government uh, are cutting uh, financial, cutting money to finance the activities of Amnesty Commission. Uh, Amnesty Commission is in trouble in Brazil, uh, but uh, but uh, there is uh, an important commission to to the questions of reparation and a little bit in questions of uh, truth and memory also. And uh, regarding to the question of the state agents, uh, in view of the Inter-American Court, uh, it's not possible to, to give amnesty to, to the agents of the state. Uh, it's, a, it's a classical, a traditional jurisprudence in the Inter-American Court uh, since uh, 2001 with the Barrios Altos case. Uh, but uh, in Brazil, the traditional interpretation, as I said, uh, the, uh, that the amnesty is bilateral, uh, including the state agents who committed crimes against humanity, as torture, uh, extrajudicial executions, kidnapping, forced disappearances, and so on. And in this case, uh, because of the jurisprudence of the Inter-American Court, uh, the, um, the Brazilian Bar Association uh, sued in federal su with the Federal Supreme Court to, uh, to change the traditional interpretation of the amnesty law. And, but uh, the, the Federal Supreme Court in this, this, uh, in this lawsuit here in 2010 uh, confirmed the traditional interpretation, not by unanimity, uh, seven judges in favor, but two judges against, uh, but uh, confirm the amnesty reaching the crimes against humanity committed by dictatorship agents. But now we have the guerrilla of Araguaia or Gomes Lund case in the same year, 2010. Uh, this case refers, uh, in this case, the Inter-American Court decided in a way completely different uh, of the Federal Supreme Court in Brazil. Uh, this case uh, refers to, uh, to, a ca to uh, 70 people, 70 persons uh, who disappeared, who victims of forced disappearance in the region of Araguaia state of Pará, north of Brazil. Uh, the episode known as the guerrilla of Paraguay uh, happened between uh, 1972 to 1975 in this region. Uh, the, ep the episode uh, in uh, decided to organize a guerrilla war to fight against the dictatorship. Uh, after the, the Institutional Act 5, uh, decreed by the military government, the dictatorship was uh, more, more brutal in repression. And for some people, uh, there were no conditions to, uh, to, to a conversation, to a dialogue with the dictators. We, they need to 
And they needed to make a, an armed struggle to fight against the dictatorship and inspired uh, with the ideas uh, of uh, Cuban revolution, Che Guevara, and in this case, uh, Communist Party organized this guerrilla war in the fields of Paraguay, it's a, a region with many forests and to, to war of guerrillas is, is interesting. But uh, it's interesting, uh, they, they had few members to, to make this, this guerrilla, uh, guerrilla war. And in this case, the, the, the army discovered the conspiracy, the, 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 the plans to, to make a guerrilla war. And uh, in this case, we had uh, a situation and the, the Communi Communist Party had uh, few members, uh, less than 100 members, I believe. Uh, and uh, the, the army, the, the Brazilian Armed Force, Send, uh, sent uh, about uh, around uh, 3,000 soldiers to fight, to, to, to fight against this guerrilla war. And they, uh, the, the soldiers, the, the, the militants of uh, the Communist Party, were massacred. And in this case, 70 people, uh, they, uh, the, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights made a, an investigation, and 70 people involved in this episode considered victims of forced disappearance, due to the, mainly due to the absence of information and explanations uh, on the part of the Brazilian state regarding them. Uh, disappeared. They, they, they were not killed, but they disappeared simply. It's a, a problem because uh, when we have a, a specific uh, act of uh, extrajudicial execution, for example, we have a body, we have an information, uh, and the families know the, the history of life in this case, began in, in a moment and finished in another moment. But the disappearances is a, a especially cruelty in Latin American dictatorships, not only in Brazil. Uh, in Argentina, we have uh, more than 30,000 uh, disappear uh, disappeared people. Uh, but in Brazil, uh, um, the number is, is less. But uh, in this case, 70 people we have, in, in that occasion, we had no uh, information about uh, about their bodies, about uh, these questions. And uh, Brazil, in November of 2010, Brazil was condemned by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in due these facts, in these terms. Uh, the, the condemnation of Brazil, sorry, uh, could be summarized in this topics here. Uh, crimes against humanity are imprescriptible. Uh, there, there is a, a, an argument in the decision of the Federal Supreme Court, the prescription of the, 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 offen the offenses against humanity. But uh, these crimes are considered by the Inter-American Court uh, as imprescriptible, imprescriptible crimes and cannot be amnestied. Uh, Brazilian duty to, uh, Brazil has a duty to investigate 
prosecute and punish offenders against humanity. Investigate the whereabouts of missing persons, identify corpses and return them to families, the thing that I, I said uh, minutes ago. Recognition of the responsibility of the Brazilian state for extrajudicial executions. Unenforced disappearance in the episode of the guerrilla of Paraguay. And finally, creation of a commission of truth and measures of remembrance and reparation in relation to the serious violations of human rights that occurred in that period. Let's move on. Of course, uh, we have uh, every, every judicial decision of a national court, of a international court, have political and legal consequences. And we can highlight some of these consequences. Among them, I, I could highlight uh, this. Uh, the creation of the National Truth Commission in 2012. Criminal lawsuits in relation to, the, to crimes committed after amnesty law. Permanent crimes, uh, the, the prosecutors considered uh, crimes as kidnapping, forced disappearance, and concealment of corpses as permanent crimes is a, an, interesting, uh, an interesting theory about the, these crimes. And remedies in respect of all crimes. Uh, in 2013, uh, a bill was proposed in National Congress in Parliament of Brazil uh, about uh, an authentic interpretation of the amnesty law by the parliament itself, because in, in the view of one of the judges in Federal Supreme Court, Brazilian Federal Supreme Court, uh, the Congress, the National Congress, uh, could review the amnesty law. And because of that, a party, uh, a party no, uh, a senator in Brazil proposed this bill to uh, to review the interpretation uh, by the, the Congress itself, an authentic interpretation of the amnesty law by the parliament. And finally, uh, this appeal, uh, is the technical term of appeal in Brazil, uh, Talita knows, <laughs> embargo de declaração, <laughs> uh, to clarify the former decision. It's, a, it's an appeal to clarify the former decision. It's an interpretative device. Just to clarify the interpretation. Yes, yes, to clarify uh, the, the decision and a new uh, appeal to review its decision. But uh, in both cases, uh, Supreme Court until now don't, didn't judge this. Uh, uh, we have uh, six years from the first, the, the, the appeal, uh, and third, uh, I believe uh, three years uh, of the second. But uh, the Supreme Court is uh, absolutely stopped with these questions and didn't judge this. Okay. But uh, here we have a, a problem, uh, uh, a deadlock, an impasse with the Supreme Court on a side and Inter-American Court on the other side, and the courts uh, have different judgments, and we have uh, uh, just a partial uh, a, a compromise of Brazil with the 
with the decision of Inter-American Court, but there is a part Brazil is not, uh, is not, uh, is not to making the correct actions to, to make the decision effective. And in this case, uh, I, I, I could say uh, there are difficulties in dialogue between the courts. And uh, it's, it is a problem not in, in this specific case, but in, in other cases we have uh, the same problem. And of course, uh, as we are theorists of the law, and we have, uh, uh, we, we have opportunities to create new theories. And in this case, we have, some, uh, we have two theorists, two authors, Latin American authors. I can say they are important to, to explain some possibilities to make this dialogue viable. Uh, Marcelo Neves, a Brazilian fellow, a professor from Brazil, and in on the, le the right side, uh, Manuel Gongora Mera uh, from Colombia. In these two cases, uh, we could say first about uh, Marcelo Neves' theory, uh, the transconstitutionalism, uh, an interesting book. Uh, we have translation to English now uh, of uh, the, the, the title is Transconstitutionalism. Uh, in this case, Neves defends the idea that current constitutional law uh, is embedded in a multi-level global legal system, uh, the definition of Marcelo Neves. Based on Nicholas Luhmann's uh, theory, systems theory, he works on these ideas of uh, double, double contingency, authority, and constitutional identity. Re relating then to the transverse rationality of this uh, German philosopher Wolfgang Welsh, which would enable, uh, how could I say, a rational dialogue between different legal systems, national, international, supranational, transnational, and uh, uh, he said uh, also extra, extra state local <coughs> legal orders. Uh, uh, discuss, discussing the questions of uh, uh, indigenous in Brazil and the local order, uh, law order of uh, Indians and uh, state order of uh, Brazilian state. And uh, it's an interesting <coughs> discussion, but of course, it's not our subject here. Uh, this dialogue would make uh, possible learning from the uh, the normative discoveries of orders, uh, this expression uh, he borrows uh, from Jeremy Waldron, the famous New Zealander professor. And the, the theoretical uh, framework of what Nevis called transitional bridges, transitional again here, <laughs> uh, we have a, a, a multi, multi-dimensional articulation between legal orders without a final decision-making body. It's a, an interesting way. Uh, uh, dialogue is, is uh, uh, we are strengthening the dialogues with the system, these different systems. Uh, he thinks about a system more than a courts, but also courts. And uh, uh, 
he proposed in, this, in his book uh, some me methodological criteria uh, to methodological criteria in decision making rather than authority arguments and no, not so uh, discord uh, decided and finished the problem no, the, the international court the constitutional court the supreme court not in this way but uh, the the needs of uh, permanent dialogues in, uh, uh, from these me methodological criteria and decision making, more than uh, authority arguments or a, a, f a specific final decision making body. And the other theory here, uh, last but not least, <laughs> uh, Manuel Gongora Meira and the and his theory of co-evolutionism is an interesting theory also. Uh, uh, Gongora Mera discusses the, the relationship between national and supranational courts uh, with uh, inter specific studies about inter-American cases. Uh, similar to Marcelo Neves, he proposes a multi-directional and in, interdependent approach between the two normative spheres of the courts, admitting the margin of appreciation, but not a margin of appreciation in the sense of the prevalence of one or another court, but uh, in terms of authority, but from the pro homine principle, the, in perspective of maximizing the effectiveness of the conventional human rights. And he, sorry, my cell phone, <laughs> they trying to interrupt us. <laughs> in, this in this context, uh, we have a uh, uh, reciprocal influence of the national courts and the international courts as Inter-American Court of Human Rights. And in this case, he proposed a, a, a convergence based in, in this uh, in this principle, pro-homine principle. In the first case, he, he said there is a top-down convergence. Uh, coincidentally, is a case involving Brazil, the old press law in Brazil. Uh, when in, when the, the inter-American inter system and inter-American court decisions uh, we, we, we have a broader scope of human rights in this, the decisions of inter-American in inter court of human rights. And in this case, because of the broader scope of the human rights in the decisions of an inter-American court, prevailed the decision of inter-American court in this case, more protection for human rights. And in the second case, uh, Colombian case, uh, we have a bottom-up convergence uh, in the, the opposite direction. The decision of constitutional court in Colombia uh, are more effective to protect the human rights than the decisions of inter-American court. And in this case, we have a bottom-up convergence. And uh, in this case, uh, uh, protection of human rights are more effective with the view of the Colombian Constitutional Court in a case uh, with uh, prior consultations of uh, indigenous 
population there in Colombia, and the bottom-up convergence uh, probably uh, protects better the human rights. It appears that uh, theoretical contributions such as these uh, can help overcome the current dialogue, dialogical deadlock between the American court and Brazilian Supreme Court. Uh, we could think about the, the interpretation, the constitutional interpretation uh, with the, of the Supreme Court in Brazil. Uh, they, they could interpret, as interpreter of the constitution, they could uh, make uh, an interpretation, uh, confirm the amnesty law. Oh, <laughs> uh, it, okay. Confirm the amnesty law, but accept the view of the uh, Inter-American Court in the interpretation of the American Convention. It's a difference because uh, Supreme Court in Brazil uh, is the official interpreter of the Constitution, but Inter-American Court is the official inter interpreter of the American Convention on Human Rights, the Pact of San Jose. And it's possible to, to make a, a, a dialogue between the two courts. Supreme Court confirm its authority to interpret the Constitution, but accept, accepting the, uh, the interpretation of Inter-American Court of Human Rights in, in the case of, uh, in the, case of uh, the American Convention. It's uh, two legis different leg legislations, okay? Uh, of course, we may ask ourselves uh, about the, the, the time, we may ask ourselves, what is the importance of making a more comprehensive transitional justice in Brazil, including the punishment of criminals against humanity, long after the end of the military dictatorship? One possible answer lies in the next slide. Uh, here we are interesting things. Uh, researchers about the, I think we have a, a problem in Brazil about democratic culture and human rights culture. We have uh, some researchers here uh, could demonstrate that, that uh, our recent uh, research about the, from Brazilian Forum on Public Security this year uh, to 2017, <coughs> Uh, about the propensity of su to support of authoritarian actions in Brazil, uh, we, we have a staggering level of 81.5% if the, the authoritarian actions uh, could uh, deal with the violence, the, the urban violence, the high rates of urban violence we have in Brazil. Um, another research, support for democracy. Uh, we have a, a significant drop in support for democracy from 54% 2015 to 32% 2016. In less, in less than two years, uh, more than a year, but uh, less than two years, we have a drop, a significant, a significant drop uh, about uh, according to the Latino Barometro research. And we have uh, another problem. Human rights, uh, the 
maybe not the majority, but uh, almost half of the population in Brazil think about human rights as, all, uh, as uh, a negative thing. Uh, it's a research uh, from Brazilian Institute of <coughs> Brazilian, I, I always forget this, Brazilian Institute of Opinion Research, uh, research from the year 2014. And we have recent problems, as the impeachment, uh, I, I wrote a book about the impeachment also, uh, controversial measure uh, without constitutional basis, I, I believe, uh, actions uh, without these this constitutional grounds, uh, the, the, this question about impeachment is very polemic in Brazil also now. Uh, Current constitutional reforms, we have uh, many constitutional reforms uh, in practice, a uh, repeal of the welfare state constitution without electoral process or constituent power, and practice, practice of authoritarianism and breaches of constitutional guarantees and fundamental rights by the judiciary, public prosecutors, and law enforcement agents in, in the name of combating corruption. It is a... Uh, uh, the Brazilians are combating corruption, but uh, violating uh, some human rights and guarantees. And finally, uh, another problem we have here, uh, probably the most troubling. Uh, I'm going to the end. <laughs> okay, Talita. <laughs> no. What we have seen, what, uh, what could... Uh, well, uh, we have, uh, we could see here uh, in these pictures and these, these statements, uh, on the left side, you can see Jair Bolsonaro, a uh, representative in the National Congress, the parliament in Brazil, and a former captain of Brazilian army who openly defends the military dictatorship. He is the current runner-up in opinion polls from the 2018 <coughs> presidential election and has almost 20% of intended vote. It's an interesting thing. And on the right side, we have a, a, a photo of General Mourão. General Mourão, he, he is a senior uh, general of the Brazilian Armed Forces uh, and he he gave a recent statement that uh, if the judiciary and the politicians in Brazil did not solve the problems of corruption, the military, the armed forces will solve them uh, by, <laughs> by themselves, in a clear insinuation of a possibility of a coup d'etat in Brazil. Uh, and he did not suffer any punishment for, this, for his statement. Well, uh, Concluding the presentation, I can say that uh, from what, what we've been researching in relation to other experiences of transitional justice and comparing them with the Brazilian one, we could see, at least uh, at the moment, uh, that the difficulties of carrying forward uh, a, genuine, a genuine transitional process in Brazil 
are likely to have a considerable influence on the institutional and social weakness of our democratic culture and human rights culture and respect for human rights also, which in our country still seems to be an unfinished and completely opened uh, endeavor. The feeling I have, I, I confess to, to you, I think science is also feeling, not, not just data, uh, is that even after the delayed implementation of transitional justice, judgment of criminals against humanity, uh, along the, with the intensification of other transitional justice measures and, and actions, uh, could have an important, uh, how do I say, pedagogical effect, I, I believe. As, uh, as has happened with our neighbors, as uh, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, uh, for example, where it seems to, more, to be more difficult to return to authoritarian regimes and governments uh, with authoritarianism. As you, 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 have, you could see, uh, in Brazil, we have a, a, a danger to return to authoritarianism, and in this case, more, with more, uh, in a more interesting and, and astonishing way, I believe, uh, between the, the, uh, the elections. We, we, we could uh, elect uh, a candidate who openly defends the military dictatorship. Uh, it, it, it's a danger we, we have in Brazil uh, for the next year. I, I <laughs> of course, <laughs> you, you can see, uh, I, I prefer, I don't <laughs> believe in his, in his ideas and I prefer a democratic candidate than a candidate who defends uh, the military dictatorship. But uh, we, have, uh, we have in danger about this. So, uh, sorry about my, my, uh, my English. Uh, I thank you very much for your attention to this, this afternoon and to, this, to my speech. And of course, I am at your disposal to discuss further uh, as we, you, have, you wish to do. And thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>